0: All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they had owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one who the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means Son of encouragement, he was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But there was no, but there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, "Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart?" You lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Was this the price you and your husband received for your land?' "'Yes,' she replied, "'that was the price.' And Peter said, "'How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? "'The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door. "'They will carry you out too.' Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead... They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who had heard what had happened. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's a remarkable episode, isn't it, in the life of the church? We're going to learn a bit more about that and uh, try and understand what it means for us today because it is extraordinary. I'm going to pray for us. Our loving Father, we do pray now that you would speak to us through your word, that you'd teach us about what it is that Satan is on about, so that we would understand that and be prepared for it. And we pray that you'd teach us this from your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you imagine when you think of a satanic attack? Uh, My guess is you probably sort of think of a picture out of a horror movie you know kind of like the exorcist where exorcist where the victim sort of levitates and violently convulses you know the kind of head spinning around sort of episode Uh, i suspect most of us myself included have never really seen anything like that in real life you may have it would be an extraordinary thing if you had but it's it's pretty unusual and because of that we can be very tempted to think that satan ...doesn't attack us and he doesn't really attack our church anymore. But this shows two dangerous myths about the work of Satan. The first is that he only acts in horror movie type demonic attacks. And the second is that he doesn't really have any impact in the church today. Both of those are wrong and both of them are dangerous myths. We're taught in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we should be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. The struggle is real and we're fooling ourselves If we think that Satan is not actively trying to undermine the ministry here at Jamboree Anglican Church. He wants to stop our ministry. It's what Satan wants. He wants to stop us. He wants to frustrate the growth of our church. And far more than that, he wants to frustrate the growth of the Church of Christ. But it's not something that's new. He's been doing it for as long as anyone can remember. And today as we turn to the book of Acts, we're going to see his techniques exposed and we're going to see how they were undermined. And we're going to learn then just how it is that Satan works, which is going to help us to be prepared for his attacks when they come. Our Bible passage today begins immediately after the awesome prayer meeting that we read about last week, where all the believers with Peter and John were been released from the interrogation they had by the Jewish leaders. They prayed for boldness to preach the word of God. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down, fills them, and they were fully pumped up to go and preach. And this point here, right at this point, we see a picture of what the remarkable unity was like as God did that. We read verse 32 of chapter 4. All the believers were united in heart and mind, And they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. Now that is what I call a deep unity. It was a deep unity in the church. And it all came from the Holy Spirit. They were acting like one body, moving and living and breathing as one body. And it meant that they shared deeply of their possessions. They felt like the things that they owned were for the benefit of the whole church. And the reason is that they knew that Jesus rose from the dead. The Jewish leaders tried to kill off Christ and kill off Christianity, but now the church and Christ, of course, are more alive than ever before. And this was at the heart of their pulse. Verse 33, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. You see, what was that brought them together? It was the resurrection of Jesus. They knew He rose from the dead. All the 12 apostles saw Him alive, just as alive as I am and as you are. And this resurrection of Jesus gave them unity. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it unified them all. And it gave them a common passion. Verse 34 and 35. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. This is what a community looks like when it's plugged in to the resurrection of Jesus. It's a community that is so focused on serving the living Lord Jesus That it stopped focusing on its own possessions. I reckon the time we get a taste of this is when we're working on a particular mission together. If you've ever been on a a beach mission or a youth camp or something like that, you're all working on it together. It doesn't matter where you live when you're at home or what you normally do during the week, you've got this common passion. But I reckon it's also when what happens when one of us is in some sort of economic trouble. You know, we've got an amazing welfare system here in Australia. But it doesn't stop us thinking about ways to show practical care for others who have need. As you know, when my daughter Liana and her husband had a house fire a couple of months ago, it was pretty hard for them. And, they, and people just were overwhelming in their care for them. The, the way in which people gave them money and and shared things with them that they needed and some even let them live in their caravan and their farm. (laughs) It was an overwhelming gift to them and just a, a snapshot of one of the many ways in which we give and receive as the body of Christ. What is it that would motivate us to do that? What is it that would motivate us to be so generous? You know what it is? It's the resurrection. The resurrection motivated them in the first century to be so generous, and it motivates us today. Because if Christ is not alive, then why bother? We're just another service club. Service clubs are good, but when Jesus is alive, it changes everything. For example... Luke, who wrote Acts, gives us an example of one guy who was really generous. Verses 36 and 37. For instance, he says, There was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and he came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. Uh, This is awesome. This guy, Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, he sold one of the fields that he had gave it to the apostles who could then give it to others in need. What an enormous act of generosity that he'd do that for one of his farms. It's not like he sold everything. It's not like they didn't have a sense of personal ownership, right? It's not like pure socialism or, or communism or everything. Like They still own stuff. But one of the fields that he owned, he said, you know, I'm going to give that field up. And I'm going to sell the whole field and I'm going to tell you what I got for it and I'm going to give it all to the apostles and they can then give it out and be generous with it. He liquidated that asset to give it to the needy. He he was so in love with Jesus. He was so in love with the, the passion of knowing the risen Christ that he was ready to give up something really valuable. And what a joy that was. Barnabas provides for us a model of generosity. And I reckon as they saw that, the early church thought, wow, how encouraging is Barnabas that he do that? And everyone's saying, oh, Barnabas is a legend. I reckon they would have said that, and they did. And so much so that there's another person that also decides to do something pretty similar, but actually very, very different, even though it's similar. In chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 we read that there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. So that's the same, isn't it? He brought part of the money to the apostles, that's the difference, claiming it was the full amount and with his wife's consent he kept the rest. Now at face value you say, look at, well, you know, he's done a pretty good thing, you know, they've They've taken some, a block of land, sold it and given a whole lot of money to the Christians and that's a good thing. But there's something that's really, really bad about this and that is they lied to the apostles about how much money they got for the land. They told the apostles, we've sold this block of land and here's the full amount we received. It's a little bit like, let's say, let's say that you own a couple of blocks of land and you sold one of them and you got a million bucks for it. And then you say to the apostles, you know, ah, yeah, I got 800 grand for it. Here's the 800 grand. And then with the 200 grand, just sort of, you know, use the cash for your own pleasures and not tell anybody. Now you'd think there ordinarily would be nothing wrong with that. It's like flog off a block of land and say, hey, here's, I got more than this. doesn't matter how much I got it for, but here's 800 grand. That'd be pretty cool. But, The problem is they lied. They said, we did exactly the same thing as Barnabas. And they lied to the apostles. And in fact, they lied even beyond that. What they basically did was they defrauded the church and they brought a breach of trust. See, Ananias and Sapphira defrauded the church and it had devastating results. The kind of results you would not expect today. But in that first era, that explosion of the church where the Holy Spirit is doing amazing things amongst them, when the Holy Spirit's been lied to, it is life-changing. Because Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. You could have done that. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. But how could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but you were lying to God. He talks specifically to Ananias, the guy. His wife's not around. And he says, you have defrauded the church and you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, you have lied to God. This is one of those bits you go to in the Bible when people say, What's that? is the Holy Spirit God? Yep. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God, same thing. And the issue is not that they wanted to keep some of the proceeds. The issue is they lied. And the outcome is shocking. Verses 5 and 6, you've got to be shocked by this. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. I don't know, massive heart attack or something like that. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. And then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him but it doesn't stop there. Look what happens next, verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in. Hi, everyone, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, so was this the price that you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. She had a chance to say, no, actually it wasn't. But no, she lied. So Peter said, How could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband, yes he's dead, are just outside the door and they'll carry you out too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Whoa, this shocking stuff. I've not heard of this kind of thing happening ever again. Okay, so it's not like it's a regular event in the life of Jamboree Anglican Church. What happened last week? Oh, someone did, told a little fib and we're setting up a cemetery out the back. You know, we've moved a bit of soil around just so we could do it. Anyway, we go, I, not expecting this to be a regular kind of thing because God's anger today is less obvious, right? But this was a very significant time in the life of the church and boy, did they do the wrong thing. See, why is it that he, they did that? They defrauded the church. They lied to God. In verse eleven, we read that great fear gripped the entire church, and everyone else who heard what everyone and it, it, sorry, great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. They were freaking out. The fear of God came into the people, and rightly so. But we've got to see this for what it is: It was an attack of Satan an attack of Satan upon the church. Satan wants to stop the growth of the church. And one of the ways he does that is by breaking the unity and trust amongst the believers. Uh, lying and deception will bring, any, will bring great damage to any organisation. Satan knows that. And I've got to say, from what I've experienced in our church here, all I see is honesty and truth. We trust each other and we do that for a good reason because I can't see any reason not to. But if that was to change, if there was some dishonesty or lying amongst us, it would bring great harm to our church and great harm to our unity and great harm to our mission. Satan knows this. And we can expect him to do the same tricks again. So what do we do about it? Well, we, we put little things in place to try and protect ourselves from these attacks of the evil one. One of them is, for example, is we have two people counting the money after church. Is it because we don't trust the people? No, we, it's a very high trusting kind of job. But we just want to make it so that people can't say, oh, so-and-so is putting their hand in the plate and taking some cash. It's just a system in place so that we can have that trust and we can say it's not an issue. Uh, likewise... We ordinarily don't have a young person alone with an adult. We've got these systems in place. We don't do it. Uh, Is it because we see things happening all the time that concern us? No, not at all, praise God. But we want to make sure that it is not open so that that kind of thing might happen and Satan might come into our church in that sort of way. We know that he does this stuff and so we do what we can to protect each other and our church from his attacks. We need, ultimately, to make it harder for Satan to attack us. But we also got to know that his evil attacks are powerful and, ultimately, unavoidable, this side of heaven. He will keep trying to attack us. But in this first century, in the time of Acts, it seems there was a heightened level of obvious supernatural intervention by God. God said, we're not going to let that stuff happen. And so Ananias and Sapphira immediately fell under the wrath of God in that way. But even though there was this attack from Satan, the church kept growing. It grew in size. It grew in strength. Let me read verses 12 through to 16. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders amongst the people. And all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's colonnade, But no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. And yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord, crowds of both men and women. As a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Wow. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were healed. This was an extraordinary time in the life of the church. You don't see this kind of thing happening today, but it did happen then. And it was because there was this supercharged era of the Holy Spirit supercharging the church for growth and f- these miracles made it so that the church could grow in his special way but did you notice that not everybody just hung around with the apostles was the gutsy ones a whole lot didn't they were scared and rightly so and that is because persecution was out but this greater persecution what did it do this greater person persecution brought newcomers to Christ. You'd think the persecution would shut it down. It's like don't go anywhere near those crazy Jesus freaks because you might find yourself getting attacked. It's like, I don't care. It's true. I've got to be there. I saw what happened with this shadow and the the guy got walking and leaping and praising. I've got to be there for this. I don't care what happens. Amazing things happen there. But then This happened. Verses 17 and 18. The high priests and his officials, who were Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. They wanted to shut down this religious cult. They were sick of it. They were jealous. They wanted to stop it. And so they got all 12 apostles and slammed them into jail. That'll shut them up, won't it? Lock them up. Throw away the key. But that didn't work. (laughs) Verse 19. An angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of jail and brought them out. And then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told and immediately began teaching. I just think this is cool. Isn't it great? An angel lets them through these locked gates and instead of running away to safety, I mean, I would be going straight to Lebanon. You'd be like, I'm out of here. I, I'm sick of being arrested and thrown into jail. But what happens is like, no, go back to the spot you were when you got arrested and keep telling them about Jesus. And so they do. And what do you think the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus thought about this? Well, we read verse 21, When the high priests and his officials arrived they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel and they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail to trial. Go and get them. But when the temple guards went to the jail the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside but when we opened the gates no one was there. And when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priests heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. Hey, guess what? The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. Do you feel like laughing? I think you should. I think it's, it's one of those times when you laugh at the power of God. It's like bad luck, guys. They're sitting there, okay, bring in the 12. It's like, what? They're out and they're preaching again? It's like, oh. Nobody could stop the apostles from preaching. Nobody, nothing. And the leaders are perplexed, wondering where it would all end. God is on the side of the apostles, Duh. Because they've met the resurrected Jesus, they're not going to stop their mission. So what do they do, these uh, these Jewish rulers, verse 26? They arrest them again, or try it again. The captain went, verse 26, with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. Then they brought the apostles before the high council, where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name, he said. Instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him and you want to make us responsible for his death. You see, at that point, Peter says to them, We have disobeyed you and rightly so. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. He got that right. Then God put him in the place of honour at his right hand as prince and saviour. And he did this so that the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who is given by God to those who obey him. Peter makes it very clear. If I've got to choose between obeying you and God, guess what? When authorities contradict, they will submit to God. When authorities contradict God's word, they are going to go for God's word. They're going to obey God. They're not going to submit to these clowns who keep trying to lock them up and shut them up. And you see here in what they've said, the very heart of their message. They talk about the death of Jesus. They talk about the resurrection of Jesus. They talk about the fact that it's all about the sins being, repentance of sins and forgiveness by God. That is what is at its heart. Repentance of sins and forgiveness by God. They're already preaching the heart of the gospel that we preach today. And you'd think that with all this supernatural stuff, that the, that the heads of the Jewish church at that point would go, you know, I just figure we might have got this wrong. Maybe we need to follow Jesus after all. Maybe they need to say we made a mistake in crucifying Jesus and now we're going to say sorry and we're going to follow the risen Jesus. But in verse 33, when they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. All 12 of them. Get me 12 crosses. We're going to kill a lot of them. This is very real, isn't it? It's the same council that killed Jesus. And now those who testify to his resurrection are about to get the same thing. But they're not killed because of some fascinating logic from one particular guy, one particular Pharisee. Verse 34 onwards. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the chamber for a while. Hang on, whoa, stop! Send the 12 out, I've got to tell you something. And then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care what you're planning to do to these men. Some time ago there was that fellow 30 years, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others followed him, but he was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too and all his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they're planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. He's a smart guy. If it's a God thing, you're not going to win. If it's not a God thing, it's just going to fizzle. So just let them go and don't stress about it. That's smart advice. Doesn't always work though, because there are great people who love God and preach Christ and things don't go well for them you know and those who are bad people will have a prosperous life preaching Satan and other stuff but in this case the logic makes sense and it's compelling so in verse 40 we read that the others accepted advice all those in favor aye. I, I against carry off they went and they called in the Apostles and had them flogged and then they ordered them never again to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go I read that fairly quickly and I didn't dwell on any of the words because I think that's what we normally do when we read this sort of stuff. But what does it say there? They called in the apostles and had them flogged. This is not kind of like the caning that we used to receive back in the 70s and 80s and before that or the strap or something like that. You know, This is the flogging that would have opened up flesh on their backs, that would have had blood splatter, that would have caused excruciating pain. It's the kind of flogging that will sometimes kill someone. This is what these 12 apostles all had because they preached Christ. Their backs would have been open and bleeding. They endured brutal flogging. They talk about it being 40 flogs. One, two horrible thing and so what do they do how do they respond to this brutal flogging read this just imagining how they must be feeling verse 41 the apostles left the high council rejoicing rejoicing that god had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of jesus And every day in the temple and from house to house, they continued to teach and preach this message, Jesus is the Messiah. You can do anything you like to me. You can can make my back into this distorted mess of broken skin and bones and it's not going to stop me one little thing. They left there and they said, you can get lost. I am going to talk about Jesus. In the temple, house to house, Jesus is the Messiah. They'd stand up there before the people with blood oozing out their backs, rejoicing that they received this brutal, brutal punishment because they were following Jesus. You know, I don't know if you've ever received any kind of persecution. Probably have if you're a follower of Jesus. I don't think it was like that. But we do get persecuted in different ways. We talk about Jesus, we post something on our Facebook page, we bring it up over a family lunch, we, we talk about it at work, we mention it to someone when we're doing the school drop off, we, we talk about it at school, lunchtime, or whatever it is, and people might roll their eyes or say things about it, Jesus, that are hard and make things out against you that attack you. It's not like this, though, is it? And yet it still hurts. May our response be to rejoice that we have been found worthy of suffering for the sake of Christ. See, here, before this, we see, right here before our very eyes, the second way that the devil uses a tool to try and stop the church. We see here that the devil uses persecution to try and silence us. It's the second way. See, full-on persecution is a strategy the devil uses, but... All it does really is just make true faith stronger. He tried to do this in the opening years of the church, but it only made them stronger. And he'll try and do it today, and it will only make it stronger. There are millions of people becoming Christians in China. Why? Because they're saying stop. They should have worked this out, the Chinese officials. If we tell people to stop following Jesus they're probably not going to do it. But the best way to get people to stop following Jesus is what we do in Australia. And they'd say, oh, do anything you like. Oh, by the way, would you like a new car? It'll make you happy. Get some new shoes. Upgrade your iPhone. Go on holidays. Go on another holiday. Get more superannuation. Go into a nice retirement village. Whatever it is, that's, that's the way Satan's doing things today. But in China, he's saying, I'll chuck you in prison. And it's like, oh, that's not working. Because the church is growing. But there's a third way (coughs) that we see the devil working here. And that is, well, have a look and see if you can spot his strategy. In the last few verses we see here, the believers, chapter 6, verse 1, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were grumblings of discontent. The Greek speaking Jews, sorry, the Greek speaking believers complained about the Hebrew speaking believers. Saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Uh, What is it that Satan is using to try and damage the church? He's using division. There's a cultural divide within the church. There's a divide between the the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. You know, we've had all sorts of divides in Australia. Divides in the church. Also, this is a pretty spectacular one. Greek versus, Greeks versus Hebrews. And they're saying you're not caring for the old Greek ladies, the widows, like you're, you're showing favoritism to the Hebrew ladies. And this is bringing attention, is it? What? It seems that there's this favoritism in the early version of Anglicare. But why is it a satanic challenge to the church? Why is it a threat to the growth of the gospel? Well, they saw the problem, verse 2. The 12 apostles call a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles, or 12 of us, we should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. What was the problem? The apostles risked distraction by administration. You see, they could get very easily distracted from their preaching by being stuck behind a desk, so to speak. Because if they couldn't get the message of Jesus out, then the church wouldn't grow. So what do they do? Well, they've got a plan to undermine Satan's wily, wily plans and strategies. Verse 3 and 4. And so, brothers, they said, select seven men who are well respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we, apostles, can spend our time in prayer and the teaching of the word. They're not saying this is not important. It's very important. They said, let's get seven people who are really keen and get them to do this so that the apostles can keep teaching the word and keep praying. And their idea was a hit. Verses 5 and 6. Everyone liked the idea. Thumbs up. And they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. Uh, They didn't just get a whole bunch of, I don't know, they got keen Christians, super keen Christians, and they got them to serve in administration, people who were fully on board with the ministry that was happening there. And they were also able to preach. It freed up the apostles to do their job of proclaiming the message of Jesus. And hear what happened. Our last verse today. Verse 7. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. The work of the devil was again thwarted appointing good administrators, freed up the gospel preachers to preach. And friends, that's why I'm stoked, as we should all be, that we have terrific wardens and parish councillors who get on board with all this administration stuff. And we all are involved in this in different ways so that it means that we don't get distracted from the most important thing, and that is the word ministry. Does that mean that if you're not doing word ministry but you're doing administration that it's not valuable? No way! If it's not for that, the word doesn't get out. It is a team effort. And this is a way in which they undermine the work of Satan. And so in the end, what we see here is we see that Satan attacked the church with three strategies. He tried to attack the church through disunity. Remember, that's what happened when there was lying in the church. Secondly, he tried to stop its growth through persecution. Let's whip them and they'll stop. And thirdly, he tried to stop its growth through distraction. And he failed in all three ways. All that happened was that this satanic attack brought an increase in believers. Ha! Take that, Satan. As we try and glorify God by seeing the church grow here at Jamboree, we should expect the same three attacks. Satan's not very imaginative at all. He's only got a couple of tricks. And the ones he used here, he continues to use today. Disunity in the church, friendly fire. It will just smash a church when there is division, when there is lack of honesty and trust. You can see the problems when there is persecution. It can be horribly hard. But it doesn't stop us. And you can see how distraction, I reckon this is an a absolute classic way that we can just be so distracted by other stuff from preaching the word of God. But friends, we are so keen about preaching the word of God. We want every single person here to be talking about Jesus as we do. And that's why we all roll up our sleeves and get into stuff so that we can't get distracted from what matters the most. In the end, friends, we need to stand against the devil by using the Lord's armour. The armour of the Lord that has worked before, that's got the smashes and the cracks and the dings in it, it's worked before and we are told to put it on. As we read in Ephesians 6, put on every piece of God's armour so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank you so much that even though the devil tried to attack the church in those opening ages, that they, by the power of the Spirit, were able to stand against him, that they put on your armour and the devil was not able to get his way. Father, we pray that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would lead us to be wise in being honest with each other and having trust, that you'd help us to stand up when we're persecuted and that you'd help us not to be distracted by things that would get in the way of us preaching. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that your church will grow and nothing will defeat the work of Christ. And we thank you, Father, that we can hold on to this promise and know that Satan has been defeated and we long for the day when Jesus returns and we will experience fully what it means for Satan to be thrown fully into the lake of sulfur and destroyed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Got any questions about any of that stuff? I reckon I might have raised a few. Why don't you ask them? Use the response slip or send me an email or an SMS or ask me over dinner. And next week we see the persecution getting pretty full on and the talk is called Stand Up For Jesus from Acts 6 and 7.